The Hamlet Podcast, episode 51. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We are now at the beginning of Act 4, Scene 3 of the play. Just for contrast, and to give you a sense of how much shorter Macbeth is than Hamlet, at episode 51 of our journey through Elsinore, we had just about begun the extraordinary Act 2, Scene 2, with 20 more episodes to follow on that scene alone. Not to spoil anything for you, dear listener, but by the time we reach episode 70 of Macbeth, we will be at the very end of the play, and the very end of this calendar year of 2023. Now that the end is in sight, as it were, Shakespeare does yet another surprising thing. He transports the action of the play even further away from Macbeth's castle, out of Scotland altogether. We are going to rejoin Malcolm, who fled to England while his brother Donald Bane, a smart man that he is, escaped to Ireland. This England scene is rather notorious and tends to generate a lot of frustration and lively debate. Perhaps Shakespeare wanted to give the Macbeth actor a break and so took this time to let him catch his breath while reacquainting us with the two leaders that will march the play to its conclusion. If so, it's a generous break for that lead actor. This scene is the longest in the play. It is a bizarre, challenging sequence of mind games in which Malcolm appears to test Macduff and try to see if the Thane of Fife is really on side. There's a great many tricks and trust issues, and it's a ferociously difficult scene to act for Malcolm and for Macduff. Add to this a curious little interlude about the healing powers of kings and another awful messenger from Scotland, and you have a rather fiendish conundrum of a scene. We in the audience have just seen the savage killing of Macduff's family, and we've been told a great many times that he's already en route to England, so we now know more than he does about the state of affairs. He has no idea how far Macbeth has gone, learning from his mistakes with Banquo, with Shakespeare now reversing the grisly scene, this time having the valiant dying child telling the parent to run away. As Lady Macduff screams murder and the assassins bear down upon her, exiting from one side of the stage, this new scene begins with Malcolm and Macduff entering from another. They're in mid-conversation, as is Shakespeare's habit. Malcolm speaks first. Let us seek out some desolate shade, and there weep our sad bosoms empty. Evidently Malcolm is still grieving. He's suggesting they find somewhere nice and quiet, and appropriately gloomy. He wants some desolate shade, where they can sit and cry their hearts out. Macduff, by contrast, is thinking that they should do more than sit and weep. He seems almost to cut Malcolm off, finishing his line of verse and instead suggesting, let us rather hold fast the mortal sword and like good men bestride our downfallen birthdom. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face that it resounds as if it felt with Scotland and yelled out like syllable of dolor. 
This certainly makes sense of why Macduff has left Scotland. He's here because he wants to rally the troops and build up, or finalise, the resistance army that will come back to Scotland and challenge Macbeth. Macduff wants to attack, sword in hand, let us hold fast the mortal sword, and fight for their troubled country. Macduff's image here is a little complicated, but what he's saying is that they should stand over and protect their country as though it were a fallen comrade on the battlefield. The word birthdom, akin to fiefdom or kingdom, seems to have been invented by Shakespeare. This is the only time he uses it. Macduff is eager to fight for Scotland, since Macbeth's rule is destroying the country and all that it should stand for. As he describes it, every new day creates new widows and new orphans. Widows and orphans are only created when someone dies. New sorrows slap heaven in the face, to the extent that it echoes a cry that matches the cry of pain coming towards it from Scotland. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face that it resounds as if it felt with Scotland and yelled out like syllable of dolor. This is almost too much to bear. Macduff is here on behalf of the country, worried about all the women and children in Scotland who have been bereaved. He might be thinking of the family he himself has left behind, but we know that he's got an awful shock coming his way. Macduff worries for all of Scotland and characterises the country as though it is wailing and crying to heaven in its torment. Despite being the rightful heir, if suspicion of murder wasn't clouding his chances, Malcolm is very cool in his response to this. As the son of the former king, we can assume he grew up listening to the kind of formal, complimentary language we discussed at length earlier in the play. He sounds like a master of it, with a bonus sprinkle of equivocation in here too. What I believe I'll wail, what no believe, and what I can redress, as I shall find the time to friend, I will. What you have spoke, it may be so, perchance. This tyrant, whose sole name blisters our tongues, was once thought honest. You have loved him well. He hath not touched you yet. I am young, but something you may deserve of him through me, and wisdom to offer up a weak, poor, innocent lamb to appease an angry god. Macduff might have been thinking that Malcolm would respond and say, yes, let's go and reclaim Scotland. But instead, we get this standoffish answer. Malcolm says that he'll lament and avenge what he believes to be wrong, he'll believe what he knows to be true, and then redress what ills he can when the time is right. What I believe I'll wail, what no believe, and what I can redress, as I shall find the time to friend, I will. As for what Macduff is telling him, it might be true. What you have spoke, it may be so, perchance. Malcolm doesn't seem to trust Macduff at all. He doesn't automatically believe what he's saying. And in this current climate of fear and misprision, why should he? As he points out, Macbeth, the tyrant whose very name blisters his tongue, was once thought honest. Macduff, he adds, was on good terms with him in the past. You have loved him well. 
And now we get another deeply ironic line. Malcolm points out, He hath not touched you yet. For Malcolm, this might mean that since Macbeth hasn't betrayed or wounded Macduff yet, Macduff may still be on his side. Or that it's only a matter of time before Macbeth does so, killing Macduff's loved ones the way he already killed Malcolm's father, Duncan. We in the audience know that Macduff has been distancing himself from the regime for quite some time, and of course that Macbeth has indeed touched Macduff already. So all this somewhat compounds our trust in Macduff. But it makes Malcolm seem overly cautious. Perhaps he's correct in being so, as he continues. If Macduff is still on Team Macbeth, Malcolm would be a useful target. He has to acknowledge he is young and vulnerable, and Macduff could gain favour or something from Macbeth by attacking him. I am young, but something you may deserve of him through me. Malcolm likens the setup to a lamb being sacrificed to a bloodthirsty deity, how it would be wise for one seeking advancement to make this choice. It would be wisdom to offer up a weak, poor, innocent lamb to appease an angry god. Now, Malcolm isn't entirely innocent, and Macbeth certainly isn't God, though he's pretty angry. But the image is striking, and vibrates with biblical resonances. There is perhaps an echo of Abraham, who almost sacrificed his son, but instead sacrificed an innocent lamb to that angry Old Testament God. If Malcolm is likening Duncan to Abraham, positioning himself therefore as Isaac, this is smart, since Isaac's son would go on to be a great patriarch. In a play that is so full of men obsessed with what their sons and descendants might become and achieve, think of Duncan, Macbeth, Banquo, Fleance, the line of kings, James and even Macduff, this little nod from Malcolm is quite curious. Eventually he will become king, and the historical Malcolm III had a life far more dramatic than this play can contain. King James, for reference, was a distant descendant of Malcolm via the House of Bruce and the House of Stuart. So the Isaac, father of Jacob, father of all the tribes, hint, might not be too far-fetched. All this aside, Malcolm is hedging his bets here with Macduff. He's suggesting that, frankly, Macduff might still be on Macbeth's side, and here to do him harm. Plain as day, since we are already on his side, Macduff proclaims, I am not treacherous. Malcolm replies, but Macbeth is. A good and virtuous nature may recoil in an imperial charge, but I shall crave your pardon. That which you are my thoughts cannot transpose. Angels are bright still, though the brightest fell. Though all things foul would wear the brows of grace, yet grace must still look so. Malcolm is so slippery here, it can be hard to get a sense of just what he might be up to. He insists that regardless of whether Macduff is treacherous, Macbeth absolutely is. And so, no matter how good Macduff may be, he could be under orders. As Malcolm puts it, a good and virtuous nature may recoil in an imperial charge. Even the most good and virtuous person might see that goodness dissipate when they're under orders. But then Malcolm apologises. He says, 
but I shall crave your pardon. And there's quite a pause here, as the rest of the line of verse is left out. Is Malcolm thinking what to say, or just biding his time? He continues with a kind of balancing act, saying that just because he thinks something of Macduff doesn't change what Macduff actually is. That which you are, my thoughts cannot transpose. Macduff remains good even if Malcolm wonders if he might be on the other side. As the younger man puts it, angels are still bright creatures, even though the brightest of them fell. Lucifer, the light-bearer, the morning star, was the brightest angel in heaven before he decided to go downstairs and become the devil instead. Malcolm continues the thought, admitting that even if everything foul might pretend and dress itself up as goodness, goodness itself still has to look like goodness. Though all things foul would wear the brows of grace, yet grace must still look so. Here we're getting some of the play's key ideas all together in one short sentence. Borrowed robes, reality versus appearance, the instruments of darkness telling truths, and of course the word foul can only make us think of the witches. Does this make Malcolm look like he's more aware of events in Scotland than he's letting on? Like Macbeth, perhaps he too has spies placed to report on the current state of affairs. Shakespeare has Malcolm seem to dance around Macduff, hinting that he's suspicious while also saying that just because he's got suspicions doesn't mean that Macduff isn't on the side of the angels. It's all very complicated. And in deliberate contrast, Macduff is given very few words. To all of the above, he says, I have lost my hopes. Macduff has already lost hope. This is very bleak and this before he knows what is to come. His hopes for Scotland are at issue here, and he worries that Macbeth is strangling their birthdom. Does Macduff perhaps mean that he has lost the hope he had for Malcolm as a potential replacement for Macbeth? If so, the journey has been for nothing. But, as the other fellow said, we are yet but young indeed. There's a whole lot more to come in this scene, but we're going to stop here for the week. This carefully drawn chess game of a scene will have many gambits, so I hope you'll stick with me as we make our way through it together. This coming week, you can expect an extremely special extra episode, and while I won't spoil it, I do hope you'll keep a little bit of time for an extra helping of Hamlet content coming your way. Thanks a million for joining me, and I'll be with you again very soon. <laughs>